Welcome back to the Churchill Podcast. This is Episode 3, Cuba via New York. At the time Churchill joined the Fourth Hussars, the last war Britain was involved in with what Churchill would have referred to as civilized nations was the Crimea War, which lasted from 1853 to 1856, and involved on the one side Britain, France, and the Ottoman Empire, and on the other side Russia. Since then, British military conflicts were concentrated in the colonial possessions, where local populations had the occasional uprising, or in the case of India, mutiny among the Sepoy members of the British Army. In 1895, there was no sign of coming war or adventure that a new cavalry subaltern with visions of glory could look forward to participating in. The Fourth Hussars were destined to go to India, but even there at this time there was no uprising to quell or war to wage. The men would simply spend their days going through the daily routine of British military life, and in their downtime they'd play polo, play cards, read, and write letters. Before embarking on a ship for India, the Fourth Hussars were granted ten weeks' leave during which many of the new officers, who were also sons of the aristocracy, and generally wealthier than Churchill, spent their time playing polo, steeplechasing, yachting, and generally just enjoying their leisure time. Churchill wasn't interested in any of that, frankly because he couldn't afford it. When his father died, he left all his assets in a trust, and Jenny Churchill was left to live off the interest and dividends. She was comfortable, but she was by no means rich. Winston, meanwhile, was left nothing by his father, and he therefore relied on his mother to pay his way in life for the time being. Since he wasn't interested in yachting and hunting and had no money to do it anyway, he began scanning the world for conflicts that he could involve himself in. He found one in Cuba. Cuba had been a Spanish colony ever since Christopher Columbus landed on the island in 1492. After centuries of Spanish rule and oppressions, though, the Cubans had had enough, and two men named Jose Marti and Maximo Gomez led a rebellion against Spanish rule and the 200,000 Spanish soldiers enforcing that rule. Churchill was keen to go to Cuba and join the Spanish military as an observer of the conflict, and wrote to his mother telling her he was planning to go to New York, and from there to Havana to observe the war. His mother, with only Winston and Jack left in her life, was happy to fulfill her son's desire to see the world and distinguish himself, but she admonished him for his lack of tact. She replied to his letter by saying, quote, Considering that I provide the funds, I think instead of saying, I have decided to go, it may have been nicer and perhaps wiser to have begun by consulting me. In the end, though, she happily offered to pay for the trip, which she knew would actually cost more than Winston had estimated, as a birthday present. Once he secured his financing for the trip, he wrote to the British ambassador to Spain, who was an old friend of his father's, to seek permission from the Spanish military to allow him to be attached to the Spanish army in Cuba. Simultaneously, he sought permission from the war office and proceeded to visit Viscount Wolseley, the commander-in-chief, who was another friend of the Churchill family. Wolseley consented to Churchill's request and sent him over to the director of military intelligence, who outfitted Churchill with maps and a detailed briefing of the situation in Cuba. During the briefing, the director of military intelligence charged Churchill and his companion on the trip, Reginald Barnes, to collect information on various points, including, quote, the effect of the new bullet, its penetration and striking power. Thus, what started off effectively as a trip of personal curiosity, the only aim of which was adventure for adventure's sake, became somewhat of a military intelligence mission. Interestingly enough, another of Churchill's contemporaries also decided to head to Cuba. I had trouble finding many details on Cecil Howard, but he evidently attached himself to General Maximo Gomez and the Cuban insurgents, effectively the other side of the war. Before leaving for New York and then to Cuba, Churchill had one more visit and request to make. He went to see the publishers of the Daily Graphic who published letters from Lord Randolph when he had visited Africa. 
The newspaper agreed to pay Churchill five guineas for each dispatch he sent from Cuba describing the situation. In the late 1800s, there was no official prohibition against soldiers doing double duty as journalists or correspondents, and Colonel Brabazon, who commanded the 4th Hussars, saw no issue with the matter. Churchill was now very pleased with himself. He had secured his adventure, his military mission, and some pocket money which he very badly needed after purchasing his horse and ponies for his posting in the cavalry. On November 2nd, Churchill and Barnes boarded RMS Etruria and began their voyage to New York. As an aside, the RMS Etruria was a very interesting ship when looked at from over 100 years later. The ship was built in 1885 by the Cunard Line and symbolizes the end of the transition from the age of sail to steam. Etruria and its sister ship, Umbria, were coal-driven steamships, but they also possessed auxiliary sails which helped power the ship while under steam, but also served as a backup in case the propeller or engines failed. I included a link to a photo of the Etruria in the show notes where you can see the ship at sea with two large funnels flanked by three sails. Etruria and Umbria were the last two ships built by Cunard which had these auxiliary sails. Afterwards, steam would dominate. After a week at sea, the Etruria docked in New York, and Churchill disembarked and met up with an Irish-American lawyer and congressman named Burke Cochran, who is rumored to have been one of Jenny Churchill's lovers. Jenny, of course, was the one who arranged the meeting. Although Cochran is little known today, he is one of the greatest orators of his time and will have a major influence on the now fatherless Winston Churchill. Churchill himself said of Cochran, quote, He is a clever man, and one from whose conversation much is to be learned. Cochran invited Churchill and Barnes to stay with him at his home on Fifth Avenue for a week before continuing on to Cuba. Their host was extremely welcoming and introduced his young guests to all the influential people in the city. Among these were 12 judges, including a Supreme Court justice, the fire commissioner, and Cornelius Vanderbilt. This last one was a bit ironic because Vanderbilt's niece Consuelo Vanderbilt would go on to marry the ninth Duke of Marlborough and thus become the Duchess of Marlborough. After being introduced at all that New York in the late 1800s had to offer, Churchill and Barnes went to meet their train bound for Key West, Florida. When they boarded, they learned that their recent host had arranged for them to have a private compartment and made the day-and-a-half trip in relative comfort and luxury. Once they arrived in Key West, they embarked on the small steamer Olivet and were headed for Havana. The steamer approached the narrow inlet that leads to the Havana Harbor, and looking up, Churchill could see Fort Morrow high up on the cliffs. As the steamer passed under the ramparts of the fort that guarded the harbor, the anticipation and excitement was welling up in Churchill. Writing about this moment later in life, he said, quote, I felt as if I sailed with Long John Silver and first gazed on Treasure Island. Here was a place where anything might happen. Here was a place where something would certainly happen. Here I might leave my bones. When they arrived, Churchill and his companion were prepared with all sorts of papers and letters of introduction. Among these were a letter which allowed them to bring the pistols they brought with them right through customs. Given the situation in Cuba, it was a rare dispensation that was made for these two young Englishmen. After them making their way off the ship and through customs, they headed to the Grand Hotel Inglaterra, where Churchill quickly penned a letter to his mother informing her of his arrival. The next day, he started his journey from Havana to link up with the Spanish Marshal General Campos at his headquarters in Santa Clara. Churchill and Barnes arrived at headquarters after about a 12-hour train ride, and it seems the timing of their arrival couldn't have been more perfect. In the letter he wrote to his mother before leaving, he mentioned that the rebels were advancing towards Marshal Campos. The size of that force, though, was estimated by the Spanish military intelligence to be between 50 and 18,000 men, 
so it remained to be seen what Churchill was really getting himself into. Even more so because the insurgents Churchill is describing are led by General Maximo Gomez, a Dominican who had been trained by the Spanish army. And included among these insurgents were the sons of the richest families of Cuba, who wanted nothing more than to rid their island of Spanish oppression. At one point, the insurgents offered to pay Spain $200 million for their freedom, but the offer was ignored and the fighting resumed. The Spanish Marshal Campos greeted the two new cavalry officers warmly at his headquarters upon their arrival, and then entrusted their care to one of his lieutenants. Churchill and Barnes were informed by this lieutenant that if they wanted to see any action, they would have to attach themselves to a mobile column. As it happened, a mobile column under the leadership of General Valdez had just set off that morning. The column was making its way towards a city called Sancti Spiritus, 40 miles away, which was occupied by the rebels. Churchill thought the recent departure of this column was lucky because he could set off straight away and easily catch up with it. The lieutenant quickly threw cold water on this plan, though, insisting that Churchill and Barnes would never find it. Instead, the pair would have to take a train to Cienfuegos, and from there they would have to take a boat from Tuna. At Tuna, they would have to board another train, which would finally take them to Sancti Spiritus, where they could meet up with General Valdez in the mobile column. They set off straight away, and in all they traveled 150 miles, and it took them three days to reach Sancti Spiritus. The mobile column had not arrived yet, having marched on foot, and so Churchill and Barnes were compelled to spend the night in a tavern, which Churchill described as filthy, noisy, and crowded. If sleeping in a tavern wasn't enough, Sancti Spiritus at this time was plagued by smallpox and yellow fever. Fortunately for them, however, General Valdez and his force of 3,000 infantry, two squadrons of cavalry, and a mule battery arrived on the next day. Churchill and Barnes duly presented themselves to the general, who warmly welcomed them onto his staff. Valdez's mission was to march from rebel town to rebel town, engaging whatever enemy forces he came in contact with, and to check in on the towns still occupied by his Spanish comrades. The next day, they embarked on their mission just before sunrise. Churchill describes this morning in his autobiography, and his feelings of excitement and giddiness jump off the page. He says, quote, We are on our horses, in uniform. Our revolvers are loaded. In the dusk and half-light, long files of armed and laden men are shuffling off towards the enemy. He may be very near. Perhaps he is waiting for us a mile away. We cannot tell. This is all very dramatic, but he reminds us that he and Barnes are only observers and cannot take part in the action except in self-defense. At the same time, he yearns to see and experience action. Before leaving, he arranged to write letters for the Daily Graphic and needed something that the British public would want to read. More importantly, his fellow officers were off hunting and yachting, and this was a chance for him to distinguish himself among all the others in the peacetime British army. He would be very disappointed if all he did was march through Cuba on horseback without so much as seeing the enemy. Churchill and Barnes blended into the Spanish column, which proceeded to disappear into the lush forests of Cuba. After marching for about eight miles, the column stopped. It was 9 a.m. Churchill dismounted his horse while the Spanish soldiers around him started lighting fires to cook breakfast. The general staff set up a table at which Churchill and Barnes were welcomed. Here they had coffee and were offered something called runcatel, which Churchill would later find out was a rum cocktail. After breakfast, hammocks were strung between trees and the British officers were invited to sleep in them for a siesta. The siesta lasted until 2 in the afternoon and the column was back underway at 3. They marched until the sun started going down, at which point they set up camp for the night after marching, or in the case of Churchill, riding, for nearly 19 miles that day. Churchill admired the infantrymen who, after the day's march, didn't seem in the least fatigued 
and who didn't have the luxury of riding on horseback. He also admired the siesta. He always felt refreshed after taking a nap during the day, and would adopt this practice later in life when he was first Lord of the Admiralty and Prime Minister in order to maximize his capacity to work late into the evening. They marched for several more days and everything became routine. They'd wake, they'd march, they'd stop, they'd have breakfast, they'd siesta, and they'd march some more until the day was over. At no point in the first few days, though, did they see or hear the enemy. It slowly began to dawn on Churchill that there was no way the Spanish could win this war, no matter how badly they may have wanted to. The jungle they were plodding through was vast and provided ample cover to the rebels who grew up there and knew every inch of it. The Cuban rebels had nothing to lose and everything to gain. The Spanish soldiers, by contrast, were fighting for pride, a worthy cause, but with less impetus than fighting for freedom. Then there was the cost on logistics. Churchill was marching with a column of 4,000 men, and that was just one column out of roughly a dozen also wandering through Cuba at the time. In all, Spain was maintaining and supplying a force of about 200,000 men 5,000 miles away across the Atlantic Ocean. Churchill doubted whether Spain could financially hold out against the determined rebels. The next day was November 30th and Churchill's 21st birthday. It would be a birthday to remember. As usual, the column this morning started before dawn, but just as the sun was beginning to peek over the horizon, Churchill heard several loud pops. There was no mistaking the sound. He knew it was rifle fire and quickly whirled around to see which direction it was coming from. He couldn't see anything as the morning mist still lingered in the air and obscured his view. The main body of the column continued on until it reached a clearing in the jungle. Here the soldiers and officers stopped for a quick breakfast and they ate whatever they had in their pockets or was within quick reach. With the rebels seemingly on their heels, they couldn't stop and light fires the way they had during the previous few days. While Churchill was eating a piece of chicken given to him by one of the Spaniards, more shots rang out. These though were much closer. In fact, it seemed the rebels were right in front of them. The horse directly behind Churchill was struck by a bullet and began thrashing. Meanwhile, the Spanish soldiers rushed into the jungle to pursue the rebels, but they had already vanished and were likely moving on to their next ambush point. This attack finally made Churchill realize that he was no longer at Sandhurst, and that he was no longer just playing at war. He was actually in a war. He reflected on the fact that the bullet which hit the horse behind him could just have easily hit and ended him. He suddenly had a new appreciation for life and for soldiering. The next day was spent marching again, and they reached their campsite in the evening without encountering the enemy. Their campsite was located near a river, and Churchill persuaded Barnes and a few Spanish officers to bathe with him in the river. As the group was wading in the water, though, they heard more rifle fire. At first it was just a shot here and there, but then more and more shots rang out, and it was soon clear that they were being fired upon. They raced out of the water, grabbed their clothes, and sped back to headquarters where they heard more rifle fire about a half a mile away. The Spaniards were returning the fire and the skirmish went on for about 30 minutes before the rebels stealthily retired. After attending to the wounded and the dead, the Spanish soldiers and officers began preparing dinner. After dinner, Churchill and Barnes walked over to a small barn that was near the encampment and laid down in the hammocks that were slung for them and went to sleep for the night. Or so they thought. The rebels were restless, and they opened fire on the camp of sleeping Spanish soldiers and the two young British officers. While lying in his hammock, Churchill saw a bullet enter and then quickly exit the barn he was in. Outside the barn, a Spaniard was wounded by this very same bullet. But no one in the barn moved despite the hail of bullets flying around them. Churchill emulated the others, thinking they knew something he didn't, 
and resisted the irrepressible urge to throw himself on the ground and cover his head with his hands. As he laid there, he looked over in the direction of the rifle fire and noticed that the Spaniard in the hammock next to him was a rather large man, or as Churchill described him so eloquently, a man of substantial physique. Knowing this man was there comforted Churchill, and he gradually fell asleep and the shooting gradually died away. As the saying goes, though, there is no rest for the weary, and the next morning the column was up and marching at its usual hour before sunrise. The Cubans were evidently early risers as well, because as soon as the column was on its way, snipers were taking shots here and there from the jungle. They had little impact, though, and eventually the column emerged into flatter land, which consisted of a path culminating at a hill with a fence at the top fronting a forest. Behind this hill and hidden in the forest were the Cuban rebels. General Valdez somehow knew this, and he ordered the infantry, cavalry, and artillery into formation. General Valdez, his staff, Churchill, and Barnes fell in 50 yards behind the main force. The army advanced for 300 yards unmolested when suddenly puffs of smoke were seen in the distance as the Cuban insurgents opened fire on the mass of Spaniards. Valdez's men responded while continuing their advance. Churchill occasionally heard the whistle of a bullet as it sped past his head and after a while the Cubans were overwhelmed by the Spanish infantry and began retreating back into the woods. The firing subsided and after a while stopped entirely. The Spanish infantry took the Cuban position on the hill in the edge of the wood, but they were unable to pursue them into the dense and unknowable forest. The Spanish won the battle, known to history as La Reforma, and retired to a nearby town. At that point they had only one day of rations left and were obliged to return to headquarters. On December 6th, Churchill was back at his hotel in Havana and preparing to leave for the United States and then to London. Before leaving, he wrote a letter to his mother letting her know he was all right. In the same letter, he told her that General Valdez had recommended himself and Barnes for the Spanish Red Cross, a military decoration for bravery under fire. Churchill happened to run into Marshal Campos on his train back to Havana who told him he accepted the recommendation and that Churchill and Barnes would be sent the Red Cross soon. The news of this decoration reached the media in New York and London, and Churchill was publicly criticized for involving himself in a war that had nothing to do with his country or him personally. By being given the Red Cross, it was misinterpreted by many uninformed journalists that he had actively participated in the war and even fired at the rebels himself. Churchill learned of these libelous statements when he reached the United States and immediately responded. He said, quote, I came to witness the war. There is no truth in the statement that I have taken part in the fighting against the Cubans. I have not even fired a revolver. I am a member of General Valdez's staff by courtesy only, and am decorated with the Red Cross only by courtesy. This statement was published in the London newspapers along with his dispatch describing his experience in Cuba. At the end of the dispatch, he summed up the situation by explaining his belief that Spain could not defeat the Cubans. But this was not out of any special regard for the fighting abilities of the Cuban rebels, which he called, quote, an undisciplined rabble, and of whom he said, quote, they never fight bravely, nor do they use their weapons effectively. Neither did he have a favorable view of a potential Cuban-ran government if the rebels did succeed in driving Spain away. To this possibility, he declared, quote, A Cuban government would be worse, equally corrupt, more capricious, and far less stable. These statements already hint at Churchill's firm and unapologetic belief in imperialism and the idea of empire. He did not believe that an independent Cuba should exist, and that if it did, the people living there would be far worse off than if they remained a colony under a civilized nation. To Churchill, the best alternative for Cuba was to be annexed by the United States, which had deep economic ties with Cuba, 
and he said as much in a letter to his new friend and congressman, Burke Cochran, back in New York. In 1899, the United States would temporarily take over control of Cuba from Spain after the latter's defeat in the Spanish-American War, but the U.S. never annexed Cuba, and in 1902, the administration of the island was handed over to a Cuban-led government. Churchill's stay in the U.S. after Cuba was brief. He soon re-embarked on the RMS Achuria, the same ship he came on from England, and a week later, he was back in London. Thanks for listening. In episode 4, Churchill is back in London before being packed off to India with his regiment. Until then, 